You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Wednesday, February 9th, 2022. This is episode number 212. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's favorite grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, this show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Join us and over 25,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you'd like to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. Today, we're talking about New York wants gifting to cease and desist. Weed for Warriors, breaking news, the first African cannabis SPAC, whatever the heck that is, the California governor coming to terms with tax reform, congressional bill to allow more THC in hemp, a new study on cannabis and opioid use, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, we love your participation, so feel free to raise your hand if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gone. Kicking off today's show is Nicole West. She is a cannabis business specialist, part-time firefighter and cat herder, and director of operations at LB Atlantis, a veteran in the cannabis industry and always ready to use her experience to guide others. The show wouldn't be what it is today without her expert leadership. What have you got for us today, Nicole? Thank you so much for that amazing introduction, Susan. Uh, My headline today is actually some breaking news. Uh, I was given a release that's going out to legislatures today as well as going to be published um, in several papers throughout the state of California as an official release from the Weed for Warriors, a statement in regards to the California Cannabis Reform Project dated February 9th, 2022. California needs real change to its legal cannabis regulations, not a continuation of false hope. Dear voters, California's current cannabis policy has resulted in an 80% of the cannabis market in the California remaining illicit, according to the state's own Cannabis Advisory Committee. Recently, a small group of cannabis business owners who helped usher in the cannabis dysfunctional cannabis policy sent a message to the state demanding the cannabis tax reform and an expansion of access. We agree about the need for action. However, their solution will fail to eliminate the illicit market, nor deliver the benefits of legal cannabis to our communities, especially those in the front lines of our justice system's destructive war on cannabis. Fortunately, there is a road to collective action, one paved by the consensus of all stakeholders, including the voters of California themselves. But first, let's enumerate why the approach taken by the letter of the signed Uh, the signers, is doomed from the start. The conundrum on taxes. The Senator State Mike McGuire, uh, uh, Democrat, joined the above business leaders in outrage and expressed his intentions to introduce legislation in early 2022 to eliminate the state's cannabis cultivation tax, to remove the tax that uh, Democrat plans to shift the cultivation tax to the excise tax. Only in California can shifting taxes be considered tax reform when outright tax reductions are so desperately needed. The question is, what is really feasible? And Senator McGuire came clean. Any permanent reduction of taxes would have to go before voters, McGuire said, citing the regulation passed in California on Prop 64. Technically, a two-third vote could accomplish the goal of lowering taxes. However, the senator is speaking to the political reality of special interests in Sacramento using cannabis as a pawn 
offering standing the way of needed tax decreases. Take, for example, the Pot for Tots child care, child care program. This refers to the state's $300 million funding for the service of Employee of International Union, SEIU, child care program for its members. The SEIU is the single most powerful union in California and has been standing in the way of tax reform since the day, uh, day one due to promises of funding from general fund commensurated with the cannabis tax revenue that is still all due. Pot for Tots is one of many funding deals that have made the backroom deals of Sacramento to garner support of Prop 64. Even if overall tax revenue increased through listed market capture, driven by the competitive prices, that path is a political non-starter in the halls of the state house. So the voters have an initiative. The voters' initiative is the answer. To drive the final nail in the coffin, mistrust Governor Na Gavin Newsom's spokeswoman Erin Mellon said in recent statement to the governor. Uh, recognize that the governor recognizes the system needs change, while at the same time expanding enforcement against illegal sales and production. Enforcement has never worked. It has always been an ineffective war on the poor and sick. And as the cannabis patients, we owe, we owe and thank you for the illicit market accessible to the average California patient, veteran, and non-veteran. Where access exists, opioid overdose and suicide decreases. If eliminating the illicit market is truly the goal of the cannabis legal, legalization, then we must disseminate the special interest, the cooperate community or the cooperative community and the political class whose legislature as means of the fundraising. We must get the honest priorities of both of those sides who created the build and build this market to those who implemented the law. But we must also hear directly from the voters of California, those who will ultimately decide the policy and give them the total picture, something that Prop 64 has failed to do. So they have a pathway forward as their, uh, you know, thoughts of how to repair this. And it is this end, we have partnered with uh, Radical Exchange Foundation, or RXC, who addresses the challenging and even intractable problems around achieving consensus in capture demographic processes, exactly the problem California cannabis is facing today. Accordingly, we have conducted the first number of stakeholder caucuses using the RX voice, a quadratic voting method successfully used in building consensus in such diverse environments as Taiwan's Digital Ministry, Colorado State House, and numerous municipalities throughout the world. The results of the exercise was incredibly encouraging. We achieved more in two hours than months of calls, said one participant to others than agreement. Now, I did participate in this um, quadratic voting session. It was exceptionally uh, useful as a practice. I definitely think this is something that could get, um, you know, worked out. And I, I hope that we have, oh, maybe not. I know Sean Kieran was driving. Uh, Elliot is up on stage. Sean was driving from uh, Vegas. But uh, Elliot, did you want to weigh in on this comment? On yeah, I, just think, I, I think, first of all, it's super thoughtful, really good letter written by Sean. I, they're not going to fix this. It's going to require a 2024 initiative. Uh, that's just, just my opinion for all the reasons that he stated, hit the SEIU on point. They don't really want uh, change. They want to put their head in the sand. So, you know, we've done these locally, $6 million statewide. I think there's got to be a move uh to get all the stakeholders together to get the signatures and jam them up with it but i, I think sean's head's totally in the right place i agree with almost every single last word uh in that letter and the thought that enforcement is gonna fix it is the stupidest thought that uh you know anybody's ever had and i think there'll be some changes uh small ones i'm hearing the cannabis uh, the cultivation tax goes to zero and maybe some other little reforms but it needs to be drastic so we can get some more of the uh market share but like fucking great job sean on the letter and 2024 initiative is uh the conversations are being had now i think it's the only solution and we will be having um some presence today elliot um i know a bunch of us are going to be coming out to support the cannabis tax reform uh rally at long beach city hall so again that is happening today i know sean will be there as well so if anybody in the area wants to come participate in a pre peaceful rally uh in regards to cannabis tax reform uh we will be at city hall from 11 until about uh one o'clock i think yeah, yeah um, more or less. Elliot, I it, it, we're going to run an initiative in 2024. I I would love to be involved in that that process. I think that there's a lot of cleanup that if we're going to if we're going to do it, let's uh let's go big, right? No, hell yeah. And I I you know, it would be the initiative to end all initiatives and then, you know, there's going to be some compromise and I think some of the things are 
our, our nuance, but obviously we got to uh, clean it all up. I've been talking to some of the larger companies, uh, just trying to you know form consensus because it's going to be a lot of money. And then, of course, between the, the patient advocates groups, the uh, you know the prison reform groups, uh, the veterans, social equity, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think it's a broad coalition, but I do think uh, consensus could be uh, formed. The hard part is going to be funding it, but I think the will is there for my initial conversation. Can we get a weed for the people, Elliot? Yeah, <laughs> weed for the people. <laughs> oh, yeah. happy, happy birthday, Elliot. It's your, it's your clubhouse birthday. Oh, it oh, is? I, no, no, no. That just means he's no. new. Oh, oh, I get it. Susan, Susan, on your point, we're not going to be able to go big because we're going to have to get a two-thirds majority stake, and so we have to be realistic with our approach. Oh, fuck the polls. Fuck the – no, no. California voters just want it to work. No, they don't. It needs to be simple and big. Simple and big. Simple and big. Keep it simple. We need to keep moving. I think that we should get a room on this. Uh, but up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour even when he's gotten no sleep for 48 hours. What you got for us today, Rico? All right, so my story is coming out of Bloomberg, and it's first African cannabis SPAC planned by Silo Saibin founder Theron. All right, so 2020 was labeled by many as the year of the SPAC. The first year of pandemic had investors thinking everything would crash and burn and everyone would be losing all of their money. SPACs immediately became super popular because they're lucrative. But where's the money coming from? SPAC investors. So that's the biggest problem. They're very lucrative for the few running the SPACs, but pretty shitty for those trying to make a buck off of what might seem like a good investment idea at the time. During the money-raising phase, there's no required intended investment target. The SPAC Managers usually given a two-year window to find a suitable target investment for raised capital, and if the, and none is found, money's returned to investors. Or what's left of it? Well, we're two years into the lives of, may, of many of those 2020 Spacavelli explosions, and um, as expected, Spac IPO investors, managers and credited um, high net worth in, individuals able to get in before trading. They've averaged annualized returns of 15.9%, while investors in the newly emerged companies have earned a negative 8.1% on common shares. Sounds pretty scammy, right? So maybe we shouldn't be celebrating Africa's first cannabis-focused blank check company slated to list later this year. According to Bloomberg, Gabriel Theron, the colonizing father of South Africa's Psilocybin Pharmaceutical LTD, says he wants to sell shares in Johannesburg by May, raising a minimum of 500 million rand, which is about $32 million, and uh, using a spec as a vehicle to buy his own company, which he values around 300 million rand. Psilocybin's Non-prescription items will be first to be sold on um, by Ari Nell Pharmacy Group with over 90 outlets in, uh, in South Africa. THC products will need to be recommended to AIDS and cancer patients by doctors, as is the current law in South Africa. The company's first in South Africa to legally grow, process, and package cannabis products. Um, and while some SPACs in the U.S. were applauded because they actually helped cannabis companies in dire need while Congress fights things out uh, on the regulatory end, uh, social equity companies like Josephine and Billy's here in L.A. benefited from the process after three years of L.A.'s uh, Department of Cannabis regulation fuckery. But this case is not out of necessity. Psilocybin can't be listed be uh, directly because it does not have a long enough earnings track record to qualify. So it's a little fishy, Theron stated last year, that he planned an IPO within 12 months. We don't have time to wait, Theron said in the article. Um, I want to be publicly trading by the third quarter of this year. That's my line in the sand. SPACs raised $160 billion worldwide last year, but are relatively rare in Africa because rules to protect investors from predatory colonizer scams like this might be the reason. Theron continued, we know the investors, we know the funds, we have the hype here. Well, you guys heard the man. Go ahead and buy into the hype of a cannabis company named after the psychoactive ingredient in magic mushrooms and make this man richer than fuck while you're pretty much guaranteed to lose your shirt, pants, and your drawers. FOMO's a bitch, right? Oh, yeah. Happy Black History Month again, too. This is Regal Lemite, former investor advisor and currently the dopest dad in these L.A. streets, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Back to you, Susan and Nicole. I just, like, had 
I just have like such a shitty feeling when I look at this picture of this like ultra entitled white dude in front of these like shitty cannabis plants talking about how he's got some big giant thing planned for Africa. I I mean, and then, you know, go to his, his, uh, LinkedIn, um, and double check, go through what he was. Um, he was an internal auditor for the South African breweries. Um, he, you know, and, and when you look at some of the background, I'm just like, I really don't fucking understand what's happening right here with this outside of, you know, your statement of some colonizing fucking bullshit is best I can see. Yeah, it, it it doesn't look good like at all. All these other SPACs are failing, and now you're oh, let's just do a SPAC. Let's make me a fucking shit ton of money, and uh, nobody's gonna benefit from this but me. Well, n- not to mention too, but this SPAC is only raising thirty two million dollars, and that's not a lot of money for a SPAC. Most SPACs typically raise anywhere from a hundred to five hundred million dollars. Well, and like the lack of you know actual production of this company at all it's i've been kind of i'm kind of astonished that uh, they're even doing that jason yeah i'm with you nicole and not to mention too i think the name is horrible like it doesn't talk about what the business actually is it talks about a whole separate industry that's trying to evolve itself so on their linkedin it says psilocybin combines biohacking biotech and pharmaceutical methodologies to deliver holistic and individual solutions um and basically their whole focus is biohacking uh, originally and so this is uh, interesting. <laughs> it sounds, sounds like yeah. a whole bunch of boof tardness to me. Oh. R- real talk. It, do- it doesn't sound like vapor at all. At all. Well, thank you so much for that story. Uh, definitely something that I'd like to see how this actually pans out. But uh, TBD. Um, and up next, we have Liz Rogan. Liz Rogan is a biodynamic biologist, botanist, cannabis, cannabis health liaison, as well as our pinup girl. Liz, what do you have for us today? Thank you, Nicole. Happy hump day, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My story today comes from MJ Biz Daily by Bart Sheenman. The headline reads, Flowers still king of U.S. marijuana market, though supremacy is waning. Seattle-based headset data tracks six recreational cannabis markets in the United States, including California, Colorado, Michigan, Nevada, Oregon, and Washington State. According to headsets analysis of 2021, in the United States, cannabis flower holds steady as the category leader, but flower share of the overall market fell and growth was slower overall, and prices continue to slide. The retail sales data shows flower sales grew from $4.9 billion in 2020 to $5.49 billion in 2021. Last year's 11.5% increase in flower sales was less than the 18% jump in overall sales. The data shows that through 2021, the price per gram of flower dropping 14% from $6.78 in January to $5.82 a gram in December with approximately a dollar per gram loss. Sales of pre-rolls increased by 38.9% from just over $1 billion to $1.42 billion last year. Sales of edibles increased from 20.4%, sorry, increased 20.4% from 1.14 billion to 1.37 billion. Topicals went up 2.5%. Tinctures and sublinguals went down 7.5%. Flower preferences are shifting in more established state markets as retailers report less of an emphasis on buying for potency in favor of other other characteristics of the plant, including terpenes and minor cannabinoids. Retailers say consumers' purchases of flour vary by market. On the East Coast, flour consumers in uh, newer markets continue to shop based on the amount of THC, and that's the primary purchase decision being potency. In more mature markets, such as California and Colorado, flour consumers are becoming more sophisticated. According to Steve Gutterman, CEO of Falcon Brands, as markets mature and more competition comes on and consumers get more sophisticated, there's more differentiating between products, and high-end flour is less vulnerable to falling prices. Savvy consumers who are shopping for more than THC content will pay a premium for terpene and cannabinoid content, Gutterman Gutterman says, and he expects flour to remain the single biggest product category. At its core, flour provides a social experience that other things don't, he said, adding that every other product tries to replicate what flour offers. According to Nick Soziak of Canera Biotech, a Canadian company, for our Canadian neighbors, THC reigns supreme. But with continued falling prices across all categories of cannabis products, the market may be shifting to a second wave of cultivators who will focus more on the craft side. This is interesting overall. It is something we've seen occurring 
as supply continues to grow. And I am curious if this would change if medical instead of adult use data points were examined. I'm curious what data points they look at overall. Seeing the decrease in sativa would be a direct result of increased traditional mix if they were tracking wholesale flowers. It would seem slightly different if tracking retail sales. Um, I would love to hear what you guys have to say on this. This is kind of data full, but it shows some interesting trends. So this is Liz Rogan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Back to you guys. I'm a flower girl all the way. Um, I would say that when you look at these data points, um, definitely with the hybrid going up 19%, it's the reality that indica sativa and hybrid are actually complete misnomers in the way that we utilize um, the specific commonplace nomenclature of what it is. And I think the actual industry is becoming slightly more aware of this. And so people are just putting the word fucking hybrid on there because they realize that the answer of it being a sativa or an indica is wrong. And there was a point that I think a lot of people were growing, quote unquote, what they thought was a sativa. But then when people over and over like, ah, this doesn't get me racy. People are starting to realize that this uh, correlation and causation conversation in regards to the regional diction of where a plant originated from versus the actual way that it makes you feel are drastically different. So I think that this personally, as far as the hybrid indica sativa transition is just based on education in the market and people just putting the word hybrid because all these fucking softwares and even metric makes you do it, which is the dumbest shit ever because it's bro science. It's not fucking real. And I think that that's just showing that. Yeah, 100%, Nicole. I think that when we talk about sativas specifically, I long for them to be in the marketplace, but educate it does come back to education because consumers don't realize the true sativas have much longer flowering time. Everything is a hybrid because everything's been crossbred to be a 60-day flowering cycle because we've been an economically driven business on milligrams, not on what quality is. Once consumers realize I need to pay a third more for an actual true long-term flowering sativa, maybe it'll mean something, but at the very least, they should know that not all cultivars are easy. To your point, not all appellations are easy to access and therefore might have higher prices because they're growing premium based on where they are. And then I would challenge also that while the flower does offer the premium social experience historically, I think as we start to educate on low low temperature vaporization of awesome concentrates, we'll see that social use also uptick, in my opinion. And I'd like to say that between indica versus sativa, a recent uh, study just came out showing that it really came down to the terpenes. It's really like five or six terpenes that gave people the effect that they thought was sativa or indica. And in another study, you know, seasoned cannabis users had equal or equitable levels of intoxication with wide range of THC. So it's not really just about the THC, it's about the terpenes and the mixture of cannabinoids. And You're right, Dr. Felicia, it's all about the terps. And the terpenes react to the plant as environmental responses. And that's the reason why the conversation of correlation versus causation, because where those plants traditionally came from, those terpenes respond the environment, the altitude, the heat, the pH balance, the salinity in the air, those terpenes are reactions of the environment so that it can protect the plant and it can give the plant pollination and, and predator repellent. Um, and so the conversation of correlation and causation ties back to the idea of it being a quote unquote true sativa and what that is would actually mean that it is pretty much having to be in those conditions for that to get the experience that we're talking about. I would also add the sun to that equation. Absolutely. Because we can control a lot of stuff indoors, but sun-grown gets you those terpenes. And if it's been growing in the sun for more time, you get more terpenes. Yeah. Take that, Jason Beck. Those terpenes are not as good as indoor terpenes. Shut the fuck up, Jason. Just saying. I think that might have been true when we were in the illicit market and we had to run from helicopters. But now that you can have proper greenhouses, proper agricultural techniques under the sun from a carbon, not even from a carbon footprint. It's just better weed. Come visit us, dude. Come hang out at the, uh, let me expose you to some. I I would love to come visit your facility guy. I'm totally with that invitation. And with that, let's keep smoking the news. Let's. He's the industry's longest continuously running retailer with two, count them, two PhDs in bro science. If you ain't at Green Street getting deals done, you can catch him in a mink coat on a private jet, staying hydrated on desalinated liberal tears, fulfilling his lifelong mission to eradicate the world of boof and smoke the earth's best weed. Up next, we've got Jason Beck. What you got for us today, my man? Oh, thank you, Rico. Thank you so much. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Happy hump day. 
today my story t- touches a little bit on what Nicole's story talked about, where we have Governor Newsom gave Cal- California's marijuana industry reason to rejoice this week when he came out on force a force came out forcefully in favor of o- overhauling the state's cannabis tax system to help cannabis businesses woo customers from the thriving underground market. It is my goal to look at tax policy to stabilize the market, Newsom said during a news conference Monday after releasing his 2022-23 budget proposal. It's also my goal to get these municipalities to wake up to the opportunities to get rid of the illicit market and provide support and a regulatory framework for the legal market. But details about Newsom's hopes, accomplishments to accomplish these goals remain scarce. Any tax changes would likely come from a standalone bill, according to cannabis industry sources for with the state legislature, while a grant program would probably be wrapped into the budget as well. Still, it's a it, it's far from clear. One, how how is how how Newsom would stabilize the legal cannabis market. Two, what tax changes he will seek. Three, how any grant program would actually work. And four, whether any tax reforms would translate into cannabis prices that are low enough to draw consumers away from illicit operators. Lindsay Robinson, uh, executive director of the California Cannabis Industry Association, said, there's reason for us to be optimistic, but I also think there's a lot of work ahead and it's not a done deal by any means. What what might be coming, Newsom ally Dustin Moore, a Sacramento-based principal at, at Axiom Advisors, said the most likely target for tax reform is elimination of the state cultivation tax, which I'm in total support of. I don't know how quickly this will happen, but certainly during this session, the cultivation tax will go away, Moore predicted. There is a watershed moment for the industry, Moore said. He understands the grant program will be rolled out in very short order because Newsom is, in quotes, well aware of the need to expand retail. He noted Newsom administration has already backed multiple cannabis-related grants, including for social equity programs and to help localities get more licenses processed. But McGuire's uh, bill might not be the only one introduced to reduce marijuana tax rates, and any tax bill would have to gain a two-thirds supermajority in the House and Senate. There is just a lot of hurdles. We don't want to cultivate a false sense of security within the industry, Robinson said when asked how confident she is that the tax reform would be accomplished this year. But Newsom's budget gave the industry an opening that can, that can be exploited, said Jeannie Coleman, the executive director of the Origins Council, which represents small cannabis farmers across the state. It all pretends it, it all portends well, and it's an all hands on deck kind of negotiation scenario. Coleman said, "If we get nothing done this year, the industry very well may collapse, and our membership certainly will." And all while the industry is clamming for help. Well, I'll tell you what, Sacramento, you better get shit done because I'll tell you what, the California state is on fire, not just from criminal justice reform, but from the cannabis market because everyone's going belly up. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. We've got Todd Ryan up from the audience. Todd, did you want to weigh in on Jason's headline? Yes, thanks, Susan. I'm glad he said cannabis market there at the end. That's me, cannabismarket.com. Yeah, marijuana market too. But I was going to say illegal. I, I can't believe we're all in this room, uh, in all these cannabis rooms on Clubhouse, and we say the illicit market, the illegal market, the underground. It is the real market anyway. For, for one, there's always going – the regulated market, you can, you can call that the regulated market, and then those who don't have licenses, the unlicensed. But that is the real market, okay? That's what's really going on. There's never going to be a fully regulated or licensed cannabis market, so – Uh, It's just offensive to hear illicit and illegal all the time, especially coming from all of us. As I'm sipping on my liberal tear bottles, listening to this comment. (laughs) Boom. Smoking the news. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Definitely considerate of of vernacular, something that we will consider, but uh, definitely uh, words that we are trying our hardest to make sure that we are keeping from being offensive as well. Uh, but up next, we have Brandon Dorsky. Brandon Dorsky is Cannabis's favorite bearded lawyer, stuck somewhere between vibes and the judicial system, a tightrope walk that he walks quite well. Also, the CEO of Fruits Labs. What do you have for us today, Brandon? Thanks for having me. This morning, my article comes from WTSP.com, as reported by Liz Crawford. Its new study shows medical cannabis could reduce opioid use by pain patients. I'm sure this doesn't come as a surprise. But this study, performed by the Allegheny Health Network Institute for Pain Medicine in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, 
found that patients on long-term opioid treatment for pain were able to reduce their reliance on opioids after they began using medical cannabis. The study followed 115 patients with severe chronic pain that had been using opioids as part of treatment for at least six months. Cannabis was provided as a supplement for the opioids in the study, and over the course of the study, of the 75 people that completed it, there was an observed 70% reduction in their opioid use. Dr. David Berger of Holistic Pediatrics and Family Care acknowledged that opioids have dangerous side effects and addictive properties, and that cannabis is successful for reducing the experience of pain in people suffering from chronic pain. Berger went on to say, quote, while a person may use cannabis long-term because it's working for them, and I guess by that definition, they're dependent on it because the pain comes back, but there's not a physical addiction. There's not an actual withdrawal that people go through and are stuck on it the way it is for opiates. The study's findings concluded that medical cannabis could be presented as an alternative to chronic pain patients and as a way to reduce reliance on opioids and limit opioid-related overdoses. I think it's great that this is published, and hopefully these studies do not become a slippery slope to big pharma control of cannabis medicine. I can tell you from personal experience that uh, consumption of cannabis is extremely effective in dealing with chronic pain. I have two fake hips and was on opioids for a long time to... Uh, address that condition, and cannabis really helped me wean off of using opioids. And as someone who cannot have over-the-counter pain medication, cannabis is literally my only option for dealing with pain. I hope we see more studies like this, hope they're more funded, and I hope that if you're out there suffering from chronic pain, that you have a plug for some good cannabis. This is Brandon Dorsky, reporting for the State of Cannabis News. Did you just say you have two fake hips, Brandon? That is correct. Both of my hips are artificial. I had no idea. That's, yeah, wow. Amazing. We've got uh, Rebecca Owens up from the audience. Rebecca is our new audience scout, uh, and she wants to weigh in on this headline. What you got, Rebecca? Um, As I and several of my closest friends are chronic pain patients, I have fibromyalgia. Um, My best friend has uh, a knee replacement, and it is so difficult getting pain treated because if you go to the traditional pain routes, it's something where they really um, they make you sign a contract saying, we'll kick you out of here. We'll notify all your doctors if you try and get opiate, if you try and use marijuana, um, but they will not give people opiates. So it's, it's this, the traditional way is keeping people in that. And I'd, I'd like to see more uh, movement or more pressure to allow people to use cannabis, especially in spaces like the VA, where, um, you know, there's so many hoops to jump through and depending upon which state you're at, like when my friend travels, the different states, some of them he can get the medication he needs, some of them he doesn't, but he, he just wants to use cannabis and I'd like to see that where it's not an either or situation and doctors back you into the corner and I don't think people realize how hard that is. Please know that it's not the doctors that are coming up with these rules about signing a contract. This, that was initiated by Big Pharma. That was initiated by Big Pharma. We are at the half hour mark, so we're going to relight this room. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's. Now, she's a feisty redheaded conservative with Mayflower roots and an avid supporter of safe banking that never backs down from a debate with cannabis lovers across the aisle. Coming to the stage next is the founder of Panoptic Strategies and the State of Cannabis News Hour's very own Washington insider, Gretchen Gailey. Gretchen, what you got for us? Uh, good afternoon, Rico. Uh, my headline is coming uh, out of Marijuana Moment. Uh, The headline is, Hemp Could Have More THC Under New Congressional Bill That Aims to Fix Regulatory Issues for Expanding Industry. A new congressional bill seeks to build upon the federal legalization of hemp by providing cannabis businesses with additional flexibility that's been sought after by industry stakeholders, as well as remove a controversial ban on market participation by people with prior drug convictions. Representative uh, Chelly Pingree Uh, from Maine, filed the Hemp Advancement Act yesterday. Uh, The legislation would provide several critical reforms, including by increasing the legal THC threshold for hemp products 
from the current 0.3% to 1% on a dry weight basis. It could additionally, however, upend the growing market for Delta-8 THC products by officially counting the isomer in allowable THC amounts. It would also address an issue related to THC levels for in-hemp, in-process hemp. Uh, businesses previously raised concerns about the THC threshold prescribed under existing federal statute because the process of hemp extraction can temporarily raise the THC content in a crop in a way that could make them liable for enforcement action. Under Pingree's bill, in-process hemp would not be subject to any THC limits as long as the final product doesn't exceed 1%. The proposal would also remove a requirement under the 2018 Farm Bill that the crop can only be tested at laboratories registered by the DEA, a prohibitive policy that the lawmaker highlighted with a supplementary map showing the limited number of such facilities across the country said, there are insufficient testing facilities right here in Maine. We don't have one at all. And there's two that cover all of New England. Uh, I'm sorry, Pingree told Marijuana Moment in a phone interview on Monday, adding that there are non-DEA certified labs that are perfectly capable of doing this. To eliminate this DEA requirement would take away one more obstacle that farmers are currently facing. Again, it takes out of this realm of, you know, this is about dealing drugs. This is an agricultural crop. Uh, Let's assess it for appropriate reasons, but we don't have to make it so sinister that everything has to be done by the DEA. Finally, the legislation would remove a provision of the Farm Bill that prohibits participation in the hemp industry for people who face drug-related felony convictions in the past 10 years. Advocates have argued that the policy unnecessarily perpetuates racial disparities by excluding people from communities that have been disproportionately impacted by cannabis prohibition. She said this ban treats hemp as if it was a controlled substance and that people are trying to somehow engage in drug dealing or nefarious activities. As we all know, hemp is an agricultural crop. It has a whole different purpose. And like all agricultural enterprises right now, we have a labor shortage. To prohibit people with what seems like a very antiquated backwards rule, it's just damaging to the industry. And for those individuals who want to participate, uh, I hope we see smooth sailing on eliminating the ban. The bill is being backed by more than a dozen major hemp and cannabis groups, including the U.S. Hemp Roundtable, Americans for Safe Access, and Hemp Industries Association. Uh, I see this bill uh, right now as a good thing. Um, I I think what it really helps to do is address a lot of problems that we have seen arise out of the 2018 Farm Bill um, and perhaps work out the gray area uh, questions that have really been holding back the hemp industry. Um, I think this it would be great legislation. Does it have a chance in hell? I don't really think so. Um, I think it has um, a better chance of kind of outlining provisions that we will see in the next actual Farm Bill in 2023. The Scratching for State of Campus News Hour. That was a really interesting story, Gretchen. Thanks. I had no idea that there were so few labs there. Well, I think I think raising the limit to one percent, I think, makes sense. I'd be interested in you know maybe the opinion of Guy um, and other folks out there what they think this might do for the industry. Um, I mean, I know other countries. You know, hemp is what you declare hemp to be. I mean, other countries have much higher levels than 03 percent, um, and I think it really would help with the. Uh, in hemp process that people have been facing that that problem. Yeah, and you know th- this is the issue. The issue is that we're we're artificially separating CBD rich plants as if they're not part of holistic cannabis, right? And so the whole idea of lowering the THC amounts is literally just because they're fearing THC and fearing cannabis by that extent. I would love to see all cannabis plants regulated together as one and varying potencies and ratios available for safe access. That being said, when you increase the amount of THC and quote unquote hemp, it will kind of solve the problem, but work in progress really should be treated as that. I have a few providers, I won't name them here, but folks can reach out to me directly that understand that if I send them rosin, that it comes from flowers that have the right COA, that rosin might have more THC, but when diluted diluted down into the products, like let's say a gummy, it's totally fine, right? Um, most people just want to go to distillate, but there is a way to use the current hemp products to get good solventless CBD stuff. But yeah, your work in progress, your infused oils, your infused rosins will be hot at the time of processing. And I think that's really the subtle change that I'd like to see. Gretchen, do you think that we should just call this the make hemp great again, Bill? Uh, 
I don't think it could hurt Jason Beck, but what the hell? If if, if we know. really this wanted, this is a Democrat. If, so if you're gonna make hemp great again, give that. it back to the black people that started this shit. Well, if we really yeah. want to make hemp great again, we'd invest in real infrastructure to start to offset cotton production. We'd stop subsidizing corn oil and soy oil and start really producing hemp seed oil for biodiesel and bioplastics if we really wanted to support 100% gee, right on the fucking money, bro. Amen, amen. Gee, always coming with the gems. Cannabis and hemp are the same thing. Cannabis and L. All right, we, I think we're at time for that story. So up next, he's a dope dad himself, known and respected as an avid defender of cannabis culture and perpetual bridger of gaps. The co-founder and newly appointed CEO of Pop and Barkley. Up next, it's one of my favorite OGs in the game, Guy Rocourt. What you got for us today, my man? Thank you, Rico. Good morning, Susan. Good morning, Nicole. Thanks, everybody. So I, I think I'm breaking a little news. This is not actually an article. I'm just here to let us know that a new bill has been introduced. AB 1885, Cannabis and Cannabis Products, Ad Animals and Veterinary Medicine, introduced by Assembly Mer uh, Member Kalara. This bill is basically trying to figure out how cannabis products under MRSA can be used for vets. Right now, as it stands... You cannot go into a dispensary and have pet-related products. While we know that pets have ECSs, just like us, and can totally benefit from especially, let's say, CBD when it comes to hip dysplasia, you know, when they get older and all those kinds of ailments that we suffer from, that our, you know, four-legged friends also suffer from, that's what this is about, right? For whatever reasons, because of fear and cover your ass, there used to be Vet CBD. I have friends there. I will definitely have to say shout out to Tim Shu. They've always been holding us down, trying to make sure that our four-legged friends get access to cannabis just like we should. But then they had to like stop being in dispensaries for a minute. Then they had to be like, well, we're called Vet CBD, but we're not for pets. Um, again, just constantly jumping through loopholes so that we can provide safe access for these products. So I am a big fan of this bill because I do think that we should be allowed to create awesome products for our four-legged friends and not just CBD-only products. Another good uh, colleague of mine, uh, Charles Lazo, out of Right Ratio for Pets, has already been using THC amounts and titrating up and seeing real tumor reduction in inoperable tumors in dogs specifically. There is, just like for us, more research is needed, but cannabis will help our pets. And it's true that when THC happens, pets uh, have THC sensitivity, but that's because they can't talk and tell you what's going on. That doesn't mean that they don't need that medicine. What we need to start to find out is accurate dosing and accurate ways of delivering these medicines to pets so they can get the same benefits that we do. So if you guys are interested in supporting, if you have pets that you love, and I know a lot of us love our pets just like our kids and probably more than human beings, check out this Assembly Bill 1885 Look for member Clara, K-A-L-A-R-A. -A -A. And also I know my friends at K Street, which is a lobbying company, are the ones that introduced me to this and are working with Vet CBD. So look, we have a lot of stuff on the human side, but let's not forget the pets. If you guys have a voice to throw or, you know, if you can figure out how you can support this bill, throw them some cash. Of course, show up to vote when the times are right. Um, yeah, that I just I just think this is, you know, while we are doing a lot of work for people, we also have to do a lot of work for pets. So this is Guy Roquet reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Go ahead, Elliot. Yeah, no, I think it's a great bill. Uh, in the myriad of inspections we've had, uh, that's definitely something they hit us on. And we're so concerned, obviously, with keeping all our state compliance. We don't even let our bud tenders uh, say pets. But, like, you know, between paper towels and selling pet CBD, they took it off our shelf. We have a big demand for it. Pets do need it. Glad to see they have a bill addressing it. Seems kind of stupid. Um, and then, you know, the really stupid part is labeling aside, just because, you know, we're trying to be compliant, we can't even recommend it as pet CBD. So glad to see there's a bill. This is a real thing. I've had a real DCC. I think back then it was BCC inspector. Uh, you know, they have to find something. Call us out on that. Being a pet lover and a pet owner, and I love my baby Callie, I'm excited. 
um, being able, I would love to see them being able to help us to understand dosing because she's a little baby. You know, she's only, she's a shih tzu, only seven pounds. So I've always been kind of thinking about it, but not knowing how much to give her in regards to just as a supplement. Roz, less is more, and it's based off their weight. Okay. But, so, Roz, you're saying she's a little shih tzu? She's a little yeah, shih tzu. Yeah, she's so go. sweet. She's, a, she's my baby. I love her so much. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, that's a great segue into Miss Roz McCarthy. Roz is the Minorities for Medical Marijuana founder and CEO and an avid dog lover. And an avid what do you have for us? Hey, Nicole. Thanks for having me. Good morning, everybody. Um, I got this really cool story. Make sure you guys click on it because you got to see the visuals along with this. So Bud Barn opens as first recreational marijuana shop in Winston, which is in Massachusetts. The road for Bud Barn to become the town's very first recreational marijuana shop was a lengthy one. Bud Barn, which opened its doors on January 28th, boasts a wide array of products and accessories at 682 Spring Street, location including indica, sativas, joints, and edibles. Its journey started in the fall of 2019 when two different groups were considering opening a cannabis shop. After several years of applications and permitting processes, the partnership between the two parties turned into a friendship, resulting in the first store. Leading the business is Marla LaGrasa, investor and co-owner, as well as the director and treasurer of the board. Though uncommon, being a female-owned business has its perks in the world of cannabis. The Cannabis Con- Control Commission has a different track for women for women-owned ventures, resulting in a faster application process. Currently, less than 10% of marijuana businesses in the state are owned by women. Sitting on three acres, Bud Barn features a rustic exterior with a newly paved driveway and ample parking. After signing in at the front desk, customers will find a blend of, elect- of eclectic decors from wood beams, gracing the high ceilings to a fireplace. The shop is an attractive place to do business. According to Anthony Perinello, an industry veteran of 10 years as well as minority owner of Bud Barn, the core of the company revolves around excellent customer service, competitive prices, and well-educated Bud Tender staff. Again, excellent customer service, competitive prices, and well-educated Bud Tenders. With prices starting at $30 for an eighth gram and $10 for one gram of pre-rolled joints, Bud Barn seeks a balance of lower prices and quality products. Amen. What's happening in that is that prices are starting to fall in the marketplace from the wholesale pl- suppliers. And what we're doing is that rather than putting that money in our pocket, we're passing it on to the customer. We think that it's really important, especially in a community like this area, area where there's underserved folks, we want to be able to offer products to everybody. And with that wide range of pricing, there's something for everybody here. Working with more than 20 vendors from all over the country, Bud Barn carries around 35 strains of marijuana with products including flour, pre-rolls, vaporizers, edibles, concentrates, and topicals. Whether it's working for another dispensary in another state, working in a growth facility or production facility, um, our staff has a wide variety of cannabis background, which brings a lot to the table for us. It's definitely a plus um, who also played, uh, said Bombard, who also played an important important role during the early stages of Bud Barn. Um, It goes on to say the shop is playing a grand opening event on Saturday, February 12th at 10 a.m. So shout out to Bud Barn. I, I think it's if you guys you got to look at the pictures. It's rustic. It looks it looks it looks cozy. It looks like they'll take care of you and great customer service. And we need more of that in cannabis. So good luck to you guys. And I would love to hear any comments. I'm Ross. Sounds like, Go ahead. This, this sounds like a booth barn to me. I'm sorry. You think so? A hundred percent. Come on, dude. Like, you don't think, like, customer service and having well-educated bud tenders that sit... I mean, there's no, there's no like, proof that they have any good customer service or any any of that. There's no there's no antiquated data to prove that. Well, no, because they're just open. But brother, they just open. So at least give them, a, like, a, a head nod for knowing that good customer service I, and educated people make a difference. I, I, I agree with that part of it, but I'm still calling it a booth barn until proven otherwise. All right. Well, okay. we'll have to go back and check on them. Then we'll yeah. see if it's booth or not, right? I hear you. Field, I hear you. Field trip. Field trip. Let's keep smoking the news. Field trip. Let's. So some know him as a communication strategist and publisher of the American Cannabis Report. But those who know him a little better and know of his secret, we call him Clark Kent. State of Cannabis News Hour's very own Superman 
Christopher Smith. What you got for us this morning, Superman? Good morning, Susan. Good morning, Rico and Nicole. And did you know if you put your names together, it's Ricole? That's why my kids call me the place where dad jokes go to die. My headline today is from the Daily Journal of Tupelo, Mississippi, birthplace of the king himself, Elvis Presley. The Daily Journal of Tupelo calls itself a locally owned newspaper dedicated to the service of God and mankind. It says so at the top of this story. TVA asking feds if it is legal to supply power to medical marijuana facilities. So days after Mississippi legalized uh, marijuana for medicinal use, the Tennessee Valley Authority, one of the main suppliers of wholesale electricity to North Mississippi, is uncertain if it can provide its resources to medical cannabis facilities. In a document obtained by the Daily Journal, TVA announced that since it's a federally owned utility company, it must adhere to federal drug laws. Though marijuana use is legal in several states, the product is federally illegal. Given this important point, TVA will not direct any federal resources or funds to the cultivation and or distribution of marijuana, the statement reads. So the Tennessee Valley Authority was created by FDR back in 1933, who Jason probably thinks is a socialist because he used federal money to help millions of poor people. But the TVA is still the largest public power company in the United States. It provides power to seven states via more than 16,000 miles of transmission lines. I never knew all this. Uh, And a whole bunch of those miles end up in Mississippi, which just legalized medicinal cannabis like a minute ago. After a huge legislative rumble that we reported on here for months, and wait a minute, one Mississippi, the TVA also serves Virginia and Alabama, which are adult use and medicinal states respectively. Why didn't TVA threaten those states? To Mississippi, TVA is a wholesaler. There are several local utility companies that plug directly into North Mississippi businesses, the Tupelo Water and Light and Tumbigbee uh, Electric Power Association, to name just two. Now, some some will say that they are bound by the same rule, that all are resellers of power from the TVA, but why is it the TVA's business that what a local utility does with the power that it's bought and paid for? Once those electrons leave the TVA lines, it's not their power anymore to, to tell anybody about. TVA is not directly powering anything in Mississippi, so back it up. TV spokesperson Scott Brooks, quote, would not specifically answer if local recipients of TVA power could service cannabis facilities. Well, let me help you see the light, Scott. Three Mississippi. Pretty sure Jason and I can agree on one thing. This is a case of states' rights that anybody could get behind. Mississippians just turned back decades of prohibition and won the right to cannabis medicine for its most vulnerable citizens. Mississippi legislators just fought the governor to protect that right. You think they won't fight the federal government for infringing on the rights of at least 300,000 friends, family, and neighbors with serious illnesses who need cannabis medicine to survive? For Mississippi, fight the power. And I'm done talking. Blitz! That was was amazing, Chris, and I just have to say, uh, when it comes to cultivating cannabis, a generator has never stopped anyone from producing cannabis. And so, just find a generator, or if you need help, providing power at your cultivation facility let me know i'm tied in with some power companies out there that can definitely assist bro it's not even first of all do you know how fucking expensive gas is let's start there second of all in order to get situations in a lot of these places like fucking mississippi and oklahoma and all of these places that have a really low grid they're going to need one of the things that you fucking talk about all the time which is a huge upgrade to our infrastructure in order to get the fucking energy out there so they have like all the control this it's not that easy jason to just be like oh i can run power out there there's not enough fucking solar panels you have to run four square feet for every one square foot of an led and eight for a hps light to be able to do it so you need fucking eight eight ceilings to be able to make that make sense so it's not that simple jason i'm sorry i also happen to look up um Mississippi being a southern state, uh, Mississippi has 216 days of sunshine every year. Sun grown, sun grown, sun grown. No one, no one smokes outdoor, Chris. Sun grown, sun grown. But the problem that when you actually start talking about humidity in Mississippi, Christopher, you're not wrong about the sun. However, you are wrong about the ability to actually properly sun grow something in such a heavily humid area. It is very difficult to grow quality product that doesn't have different types of molds and bacteria with that level of humidity. Hmm. Damn. And you need 8x of roof to grow on HPS and 4x to grow on LED for your solar panels to even make sense. 
if it's for if it's for (laughs) if it's for medical cannabis the electricity should be discounted in my opinion what if it's triple x nicole shut the fuck up susan you want to do a story today (laughs) I do. I do want to do a story because this is a trending story and I wanted to make sure and get it in. Uh, New York is trying to crack down on the gifting model that we've been talking about and it's sending out cease and desist orders. So my article comes from WENY News and the headline is NYS Marijuana slash sticker gift shops threatened with legal ash action by Marsha Augustin. It's not just sticker gift shops, by the way, but whatever, here's the deal. So today, the Office of Cannabis Management announced an enforcement action. This is in New York. Cease and desist letters sent to suspected violators making clear cannabis sales, including gifting, are only allowed by licensed dispensaries. Illicit sales must stop immediately or risk losing their ability to get a license in the legal industry. The OCM has identified over two dozen alleged violators. In Elmira, New York, Bartholomew Miller is a co-owner of a shop called B Mills. He sells stickers and offers a complimentary gift of cannabis. For B Mills, business has been growing for now has 10 locations and over 70 employees. I'd like to know what the cease and desist is and how long do they give us to do so, Miller said. However, he says he's not surprised by the new state enforcement action. He figured it wouldn't be long before the state started cracking down on gifting businesses. He explains he's anxious to receive and review the letter, but until then, it's business as usual. We to- quote, we totally expected this to come forth. It's not something we weren't aware of or not prepared for. B. Mills is always ready to conform and comply, he said. We aren't looking for trouble. By no means, we are not looking for consequences or want to deal with any of that. So conform and comply is our motto, Miller said. As far as applying for a license, he says it's a gray area and explains he doesn't have the funds for the cost of a license. My opinion is that the uh, New York Office of Cannabis Management needs to uh, stay focused, stay on target, get their regs out, get this industry up and running. What do y'all think? This definitely sounds like a delay tactic on the, on the state's part. And the state, state definitely isn't going to come out with their regulations in, in the time frame that they set out if they start going down this rabbit hole. Yep. Is New York taking the lead in doing this on this gifting thing? Because I know we've seen this come up in other states. Are any other states taking action on this? Do we know? D.C. was doing it. Uh, Gretchen, what's going on uh, with the D.C. gifting? You can gift all day and all night. That's the only way to get cannabis yep, here. Yep, D.C. still does it. The capital of our fucking country still does that. I think it was refreshing that this guy said, we can't afford a license and we're just doing it while we can. Can't wait to get the cease and desist. Well, not, not to mention these people are capturing a lot of market share and they're going to have very viable businesses that is definitely going to compete with the regulated market as soon as it goes online too. I agree. We've got Pamela Wexler up from the audience. Pamela, did you want to weigh in? Oh, hi, thanks. Just wanted to make uh, the distinction in D.C. The gifting was upheld by the Court of Appeals here because of the situation with the Harris Rider, which prevents the D.C. Council from um, implementing the voter initiative that was passed in 2015. And so that gifting is being considered a legal fiction by every court that's looked at it and struck down, but in D.C. it's been upheld. Jonathan Kern's up from the audience. He's a fine dining cannabis chef. Uh, Jonathan, the show's about to end, so um, 20 seconds. Hey, thanks. Uh, Real quick, uh, to answer your question, in New Jersey there was um, some busts that were going on with some uh, cannabis uh, dispensaries that were selling illegally. A uh, bus of, uh, I think it was like four people with intent to distribute um, that are now in jail. They just did the bus yesterday, the same day that New York sent out all of those um, those notices. So it seemed to have been kind of like a joint effort on New Jersey and New York to start cracking down on illegal dispensaries that are growing in popularity. 
as a cannabis chef in New York, I'd see them all over the place and they keep giving me phone calls to do work with them, but I Thank don't you want to so- do it. Thank you so much, Jonathan. We're at time um, for the show. It goes by really quickly. That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Nicole and Rico for co-producing the show and our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. Thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears. When there's news in your city, county, state, or country, your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Your daily dose. Say goodbye, Rico. Bye 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 bye.